so the question for you is, and this is interesting, I heard this at a conference, is at what rate does technology get adopted? Is it trust? Is it competence? At what rate do you believe technology gets adopted? So I think these days, trust is probably like the top of the line. I think the abuses that uh, that we've seen from some bad actors in the process have created a lot of questions about technology. And so uh, establishing trust at the highest possible level is key if you want to have clear adoption. You are listening to The Real Leaders Podcast, where today impacts tomorrow. Adoption requires trust and leaders keep it real. That, my friends, was Tristan Lewis, president and CEO of Casebook, who I thought was a really interesting guest to have on the show, not just because of the company, but his impact on technology and the internet. And in fact, it's partially his fault. You're listening to me speak right now because he, my friends, was a part of developing the original RSS feed that this podcast lives on. Listen to this. thing here in the United States, and I found myself basically as part of a set of core group of geeks, basically, that we're you know, 22, 23, and we're, we're going to change the world with this stuff. Uh, and we did, somehow. So we've got it all today, folks. And I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, let's give it up for the real Tristan Lewis. Enjoy. Okay, let's have fun. Here we go in five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome everyone to the Real Leaders Podcast, your number one source for impact leaders harnessing capitalism to sustain the planet, people, and profits. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining me today is the president and CEO of the Impact Award-winning Facebook, Tristan Lewis. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you. Pleasure being here. So Tristan, uh, for those who don't know, it seems that you've had a, a, a kind of like a life exploration of technology almost, you know, being a pioneer of the internet, uh, what I'm recording on right now, podcasts, RSS feeds, um, and obviously, you know, the internet wasn't built by just one person, the RSS feed wasn't built by just one person, but you've seen the play a role in that. Um, pretty fascinating stuff, but with Casebook right now, where are you in terms of self-actualization and self-fulfillment in your career? Well, I would say that in terms of Casebook, I'm at the beginning of a new journey. Love it. Uh, and it's because uh, in 2015, 2016, I started wondering about all this technology we had been building, its impact on the world, and started seeing, well, you know, a lot of the horrible things that people are talking about when it comes to technology today in terms of the negative uses that technology has uh, um, engendered. And because technology is a tool, it kind of cuts both ways, right? It's like a knife. You know, you can make a great meal with a knife or you can kill someone with a knife. Technology works the same way. And by 2015, 2016, having uh, sold a few companies and been lucky in the process, I was getting going through some fairly dark places, wondering, did I make the world a worse place and a better place? Mm. And so as I was asking myself those questions, I was approached by one of the largest foundation in the United States, the NEKC Foundation, which is focused on that child welfare. And they were like, we've got these technology assets here. We don't know what to to do with stuff. And I started looking at the stuff and um, looking at the government space, uh, uh, the human services area, so the social welfare part of government. 
and realized that this was an area where technology had actually not come in, where people were still dealing with pen and paper or computers from the 80s and 90s. And all this great stuff that we had built for the consumer world and for the enterprise world was not being used by the people that are helping the most vulnerable members of society, children in child welfare, people in uh, homeless shelters, uh, people in the adult protective uh, system. And so there was this whole process Hmm. there and this whole set of problems where technology was not being applied and where there was a lot of money being spent in terms of trying to solve the problem of poverty without really using basic computers, stuff like your mobile device to gather information. And it made me realize we could solve poverty by applying technology to it, just as Bill Gates has been applying technology in Africa to help fight polio by just you know mapping out the areas where it was uh, spreading. We can actually do the same kind of stuff to solve some of the problems around child welfare, around juvenile justice, and so on. And so Casebook is the beginning of that journey. Casebook is providing some of the tools to frontline workers that are helping them do their job more efficiently, better, and spend less time with technology in terms of entering data just for a pure compliance standpoint, and more time actually leveraging the technology to spend more time with people. Mm. I like I get that clearly, and and I love companies like yours. Now let's start with just the company and just that point, and then we can break it out into maybe a bigger existential question. So with your uh, technology, uh, is it a trade off uh, to create something like this for a marginal community? And maybe explain to business owners listening to this the advantage of working with people um, you know that that really do need it and that really can harness this energy and that impact that you're actually having so there it's actually a surprisingly there isn't that much of a trade-off from a from a purely commercial standpoint the crazy thing is that there's 1.3 trillion dollars in the u.s alone that are being spent on dealing with human services of that 28 billion dollars is spent on technology and what do they get for that they get reports that are two to three years old mm. into uh, understanding where the problem lies. And so if I'm telling you today that you know, you're trying to solve this problem, but here, I'll give you data from 24 to 36 months ago, are you really ever going to be able to make some real progress in terms of solving the problem? Probably whereas, not, yeah. whereas if I'm providing you with data that is current and accurate, say, within the day or within a couple of days, it becomes a real revolution. In order to get to that, though, you need to actually kind of unpack some of the core problems that you're dealing with. And so what are some of the problems that you're dealing with? Well, traditionally, the way individuals have been treated in the social welfare system is through the idea of case management. And a case is really a stack of paper. It's a stack of paper in a file. Somebody comes in, right, they fill out some forms, It goes through the process, they're given some services, and then the case is closed, the forms are put on the shelf somewhere. And if if the problem has not been solved, that problem, more likely than not, is gonna come back into the system. Mm. And what's gonna happen is that they're gonna fill out the same forms, people are gonna treat them the same way, and then 
the cycle is going to repeat itself. It will be stored, and they never have any particular sense of history. So we decided to actually take a different approach and said, well, those are individuals that are being treated. So why don't we start really using the power of social networking, right? Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, and building social profiles of the people that are being helped. So instead of treating them as a case, as a stack of paper, let's treat them as an individual. Mm. And so now when the person first come in, it really doesn't change that much. But the next time the person comes in, if they have relapsed in some way, shape or form, all that history of contact, all that history of in interactions that they've had actually is now available to the caseworker. And that is really driving a new revolution because now the caseworker can go, oh, we tried this, that didn't work. So let's try something different. Or, oh, that person is related to that other person that we know in the system. And we know that we've managed to help that other person in that particular way, so let's try that. Mm. So by building a social graph around individuals that are being helped in social welfare, and by then applying all the history of involvement with those individuals, we can actually get those people the sol- to the solution that they need to get to in order to get off the welfare rolls. Amazing. Now, Tristan, maybe could you, uh, in layman's terms for our audience listening to this, maybe uh, describe a, a use case. For instance, when I think social welfare system, I think of either food stamps or the foster system. Um, would you mean explain a use case for them? Let's say the foster system. So in the foster system, more often than not, what happens is that a child is going to be taken out of their family, right? And why are they taken out of their family? So most people think, well, it's abuse. But uh, in a lot of cases, it's actually what is considered unsafe conditions. The child doesn't have a roof over their house. There's not enough food in the place. There is maybe um, a missing mattress in the place. And so those conditions are considered unsafe, and therefore, the child is taken out of their family. Now, we know from studies that the minute you take a child away from their family, you create trauma. And the kind of trauma that it creates, no matter uh, how, uh, you've taken, how many days you've taken the child out of that family, that trauma will follow them for the rest of their lives, leading to the point where a child in the social welfare system has a three to four percent chance of graduating out of high school. Mm. Wow. Now, what if we were to start looking at what are the conditions that have led to that child being taken out of the house? So it's a roof that's missing. Well, the way the government has traditionally dealt with this is that the child welfare system is sitting over here in this one vertical, but the housing system is sitting in this other vertical here. Mm. Two have never been connected before. We started saying, well, what happens if we can give the social worker the tools that allow them to go, oh, the problem here is this family does not have a roof over their head. So let's move the family together into an environment where there is a roof over their head. Let's remove the, condi- the original condition that would require that child to be taken out. Or there is not enough food in that household. How do we accelerate the pace at which this family can get access to food stamps in order to not remove that child? And so that can lead to radical changes in policy, because now instead of taking that child and creating that initial trauma, which, by the way, generationally means that that child is more likely to actually end up back on social welfare, by removing that trauma right now, 
you actually keep that child with their family and you substantially increase their chances of graduating high school and going on to maybe even college. I'm, I'm there, Tristan. And, and this is, reminds me so much of, uh, I had a guest on Artie Arianpour is his name, kind of a, an interesting name, um, founder of Seekster. And they had the same interoperability method for healthcare records. Um, because what yeah. he was saying, I'm sure it's probably the same thing, correct me if I'm wrong, but my data is siloed at my last uh, health insurance. Uh, my, data, my data is siloed at my current medical provider. It's, it's siloed at my old uh, you know, pharmacy. But what your, uh, I guess what your casebook is doing is uh, providing that API key or something that is able to connect all of those data points together to make an, an objective decision. Now, Tristan, what does that do? Okay, yeah, explain that. And that's kind of the, the crazy thing is that, you know, the, there's so many of those silos that exist and no one really connecting them. But going even worse than that is that the basic idea in government is that technology is only to be used to create reports. So caseworkers today are spending 50, 60, 70% of their time entering data into a computer that they never see again. Mm. The that data goes somewhere into a data warehouse and then from there it's aggregated to create a report that is sent to the federal government purely for reimbursement purpose that data is never used to actually help the families on the front line Mm. and so the revolution that we're bringing here is actually saying you know what let's free up that data let's make it available to the people on the front line so they can actually use it to improve the lives of people and then that, that's the first part. The second part is, as I mentioned, 50 to 60% of their time entering data into a computer. That's crazy, right? The people yeah, that are coming into the right. field are not coming into this field because they want to enter data into computers. They're coming into this field because they want to help people. Mm. And so by using artificial intelligence against our system, we can actually help them spend less time entering this data into the system. So we take the intelligence and figure out how to format the data for a compliance standpoint and allow them to spend more time treating the individuals that they decided to treat. I got it. So uh, now, Tristan, in terms of impact, how are you measuring it? You mentioned uh, saving the time, just like just like you said right now, the trauma, uh, which leads to uh, graduation rates, which eventually could lead to employment or anything like that. How do you measure all these things uh, and, and how important are they to uh, Casebook's uh, bottom line? So the measurement to us is important for us from a social bottom line standpoint we have a we're a public benefit corporation so we have a double bottom line right we're uh, we have a financial bottom line but we also have a social bottom line and the way we measure this is in terms of outcomes and some of the outcomes we're looking at are things like how much have we reduced the amount of time that it takes a caseworker to enter data into a system or how many children have been reunited with their families over a 30-day period. Because the thing, the minute a child enters the uh, child welfare system because of the court system, et cetera, increments are measured in 30-day increments. That child is out of their family, they're not coming back for at least 30 to 60 days. So how often do they get parent visit rights? How often do they um, see the caseworker that they're dealing with? How often is the caseworker involved on their case? You know, um, 
how many times can we reunite one of those children with someone in their family? So in a lot of cases, it may be that the situation is so bad that they can't necessarily go back with their parents. But what we found is that there is an uncle or an aunt or a grandfather that's already licensed to be a foster parent somewhere in the system or that can easily be licensed to be a foster parent in the system. And reuniting them with their family is actually a great way to improve the overall outcome. It's called kinship reunification in that particular space. And so we've managed to actually increase those numbers by double digits in some of the states where we've been involved. Mm. So uh, Tristan, are you the only organization that is developing something like this? Are there others? And what's like the long-term vision for this interoperability in social in the social uh, uh, system? Yeah. So we're... Um, we're one of the few companies that is taking as expensive a vision of solving these particular problems. So there are a lot of large system integrators that are going to build systems that are doing exactly what government wants them to do in exactly the same way it's been done for the last 50 years. There are uh, software providers that are providing very narrow slices of the overall market, but there are a few companies like ours, actually, I can't think of any other company like ours that takes a horizontal approach to the human services arena and is trying to connect all the dots into an overall system. Now you ask, what is the end game from our standpoint? The end game from our standpoint is that we solve poverty through software. Now I know that sounds like a crazy type of idea, right? But our view is that by applying technology and working in a cyclical fashion, we can help more and more and more people no longer have a need for those services because no one wants to enter the social welfare system because they like the social welfare system. They enter it because they need it. Mm -hmm. And so we're trying to provide the solutions that will get to the point where they can actually live without having to need the social welfare system. Mm, yes. Okay. I really like that. And, and that's, is that what you were alluding to in terms of uh, policy change as well? So what type yeah. of policy change uh, would be needed in order to, you know, help um, catalyze uh, the implementation of uh, this interoperability network? So the truth is that there's a whole bunch of different pieces sure. uh, of right. policy change that need to, to happen. Um, the first one is that there's still very much a fear of technology in government due to a lack of understanding of what technology can and cannot do. So we're getting past some of that. The second part is that government, you know, people look at government as this big machine, but the reality is that it's a network. And so in a lot of cases, you've got agencies that are very narrow from their, from a focus standpoint. Maybe you have like a, a child welfare agency or a housing agency or a benefits agency, and they're not talking to each other. And they're set up in such a way where they don't have sharing of data embedded into what they're doing. They're all kind of uh, keeping their own set of data because it protects their turf. Mm -hmm. And so some of the policies that, are, that enable cutting down those silos is really one of the first set of policies that need to be put in place. But going beyond that is really the thinking that you're not just treating a particular problem. You're treating an individual across a variety of 
connections is a much harder problem to deal with. So that, that's going to take some time. And then taking it one layer even further than that is actually understanding, once you've got the data all connecting, understanding what works and what doesn't from a practice standpoint. So let's say that we, were, we end up in the world that I envision, right, where we have systems that are interconnected and that have information that sh- is shared across all the systems. But at that point, you can start analyzing that data. You can go, okay, this type of intervention works for these particular psychographic, geographic, and demographic uh, components over here. And so for this person, this is the best type of intervention in terms of helping them. But that other person over here, they've got a different profile, so we're going to have a slightly different type of intervention. And I think when we get to that point, at that point, we'll start seeing an acceleration in terms of the number of cases that are resolved successfully. So, uh, Tila, let's let's look at uh, when you said uh, earlier. I, I wasn't really sure. I went. I had a dark place. I wasn't really sure if my technology that I had created uh, was being used as as a tool or a weapon. Um, <clears throat> the thing that jumps to my mind with this is. Hey, if I'm a, a, a medical patient or if I'm uh, someone who's in the foster care system, my data is going to be accessed and seen and seen and seen by all these uh, people that have access to this API key. Now, what's the problem or what's some what are some problems that uh, you might be worried about in terms of running into in terms of data security and privacy with this? So that's table stakes, right? I mean, uh, you you need basically, you don't build a system in this particular area or in the medical space without having some really tight security around individual's data. The question then becomes who has access uh, to each individual pieces of data and what allows them to have that access and how can you revoke that access if that person is particular or group is um, abusing it. Because of the place where we work, which is really a combination of the government level, which generally has access to pretty much everything, right? So kind of default standard that uh, uh, the agreement with them is they have access to your data. And then the private sector, which may or may not have access to the data, understanding uh, how the government is granting access to that data or how the individual is granting access to that data is kind of key to building a system like ours. And so everywhere, every step of the way, and this is part of the secret sauce in what we're doing, is really understanding how that data is moving from one particular side to another. Okay, got it. Now, Tristan, uh, you've you've obviously been uh, you know a pioneer in technology. Uh, you've seen some of it be adopted. I'm sure you've seen other technologies be dropped that were really exciting at the time. Um, so the question for you is, and this is interesting. I heard this at a conference: is at what rate does technology get adopted? Is it trust? Is it competence? At what rate do you believe technology gets adopted? So I think these days, trust is probably like the top of the line. I think mm. the abuses that uh, that we've seen from some bad actors in the process have created a lot of questions about technology. And so uh, establishing trust at the highest possible level is key if you want to have clear adoption. The second part of that is then demonstrating 
the non-threatening aspect of technology. So once you've established trust that, yes, you're a good actor, a solid actor, it's that that second degree uh, of potential use of your technology for primarily beneficial um, causes. Because there's a lot of questions around artificial intelligence, machine learning, et cetera, about how bad actors could use originally well-intentioned mm. kind of technologies. And so then layering, peeling that le- second layer of the onion is there. Mm. The third part then becomes ease of use, right? I mean, how easy it is. Is it more cumbersome or is it easier to use? And last but not least is how close is it to what we already know? I mean, it was uh, Jeff Bezos that said that uh, when people ask him about uh, the future, he doesn't look at what is going to change in the future. He about what isn't going to change because the things that are not going to change are the things that are actually establishing what is going to be accepted by people. And so when we're looking at acceptance of technology, it's really a question of degree. And so we're trying to always lead people to a large jump, but in increments, where each increment feels like it's really not that different from what they've experienced in the past. That's an interesting point. That's a really interesting point. I've never heard that. Like that take a lot, Tristan. Uh, I'm fascinated by data security. Uh, so a question for you is just because I have here is uh, blockchain technology, something that's coming out. Uh, it's it's still fairly new. Obviously, the Internet, when it started out, very slow. Blockchain technology still very slow. I don't know if it'll ever speed up. I don't know if the, if the chain gets longer. It's going to take more time. But just out of curiosity, where do you see blockchain uh, technology going and would you ever consider using it in your business? So blockchain is kind of an interesting one, and I keep going back and forth as to whether we'll use it or not. The, uh, the challenge around um, using blockchain technology ultimately, and for, I don't know how much your audience knows about blockchain technology, but it's basically this idea of a ledger, right? If you're taking like a financial ledger or a list of uh, anything and making that public and saying that every new line that you're adding can not be uh, changed because everyone, every time you're adding something else, it actually connects the rest of the stuff together. In, in the world that I operate in, because we're dealing with individuals, we're dealing with identity, theoretically, blockchain would be a great place to apply that kind of technology, right? Because uh, people don't fundamentally change. Like, you're always going to be you. I'm always going to be me, right? And so, yes, there may be some extra data around us, but at its core, we may exist, we may continue to exist as uh, the individuals that we are. And so it seems that establishing that, and there's some trials around uh, digital birth certificates on the blockchain in some states. So I think it's it has a future there. That said, uh, you talked about data security and the challenges around this. And today the blockchain is completely transparent to individuals. And so everyone can see everything that is on the blockchain. And there really isn't a level of maturity that's particularly high when it comes to protecting the visibility of that data. And so I think we're probably, you know, uh, 
uh, at least three to five years away from uh, that being the kind of technology that is normalized in the world. And so today, uh, we're keeping an eye on it, but uh, it's going to take a little bit longer before we can actually leverage it. Interesting. Well, I'm glad we started off with that whole like premise of of is my technology going to be a tool or a weapon? I really think that's interesting. In terms of blockchain, the way I had explained to me too was uh, on that chain, like my, all my data is out for everyone to see. However, my username is this could be like you know you know yeah. kxx37 you know 900,000 and no one would know who i am uh and so therefore no companies would know who i am and and you know in theory this could be a revolutionary idea that could really do a lot for people in marginal communities and around the world you know and decripple banks but just like i guess you know we, to your point about bezos is what's what's not going to work so it, i i too go back and forth with that so in you know in theory you do have anonymity, right, on the blockchain or on the internet in general. In theory, you have anonymity on the internet. But if you think about it, right, right now, as people are accessing this particular program, they're accessing it via an IP address. The device has a MAC ID, a, a network address. There's a number of factors that are connecting all those things that allow to track it back to one individual, even if they route around the world. So... I'm always suspicious of people that are saying, oh, you get extreme anonymity on this because there is always a way to uh, break through this anonymous filter. And the more powerful the solutions become on top of one of those anonymous things, like, like the blockchain, the more there are bad actors that are going to come in try to, trying to figure out how to break through that veil of anonymity. Mm. And so for our, our listeners, uh, you know, hearing this now, uh, they're interested in tech, interested in kind of where things are going. What advice do you have for them? Where, where to get started? Where are some books they can read? What are some things that have helped you in your career, Tristan, uh, to get into technology and to learn more about this space? So I, I kind of stumbled into, into technology by luck. I mean, uh, um, I'll give you a brief aside on this uh, around my own personal history in the space, which is that uh, I'm the result of a government program, really, from a technology experience in that I'm French. And in the 1970s, the French government had a, a centrally operated telecommunication company. And they decided that the phone book, which was this paper stuff that they would send for phone listing, uh, was too expensive. And so that instead... They were going to put a computer terminal in every house in France, uh, connected to uh, to a network, and uh, that uh, you would have chat system and the equivalent of e-commerce and all that stuff on those. This was in 1977, um, you know, about 20 years before the internet really became a thing in, uh, in the U.S. And so I grew up on a network, uh, and so to me, kind of doing stuff on the network was always, you know, what my life was going to be about. But in the early 90s, as the internet was um, exploding, uh, it was a new thing here in the United States. And I found myself basically as part of a set of core group of geeks, basically, that were, you know, 22, 23, and going, we're going to change the world with this stuff. Uh, And we did, somehow. When it comes to like looking at this stuff, if I were to uh, give a pass to your listeners, 
Well, first, you know, going back to the 1990s and starting there it would be a good way. But since <laughs> no one has a time machine, that is not uh, something that's uh, achievable for most people. So what I would look at is, is behavior. It's not just about technology, but it's about what, what are you trying to solve? What problem are you trying to solve? And then is technology the best solution to solve that particular problem? The technology in itself is actually not that hard. There's, you know, computers or mobile devices or uh, even sensors are really not that complex. But more fundamental than that is what are you trying to do? What are you trying to solve? And what I've learned in my experience in terms of building companies is that it really comes down to two things. One is a problem that you're trying to solve. And two, that it, that, that problem is something that people are willing to pay you for solving that particular problem. If you've got those two components, you can build a business. And if you can build a business, then you can apply those revenues back to so continuing solving that particular problem. Mm, I like that. That's really good advice, especially for a lot of people coming to this podcast for leadership as well. Uh, I think what's so fascinating about your career is, uh, you know, a common trait of leaders is they do things that aren't externally validated. Uh, for instance, all your work uh, in, in tech and the RSS feed and, and, you know, gosh, so many different companies. Um, what, what are some maybe some takeaways from that? What did you learn uh, when you said you're building and growing a, a company? You're obviously you're willing to get paid for that. What about the people in the company? How important is uh, the person at the helm, the coxswain of the boat, uh, in terms of, of getting your team in alignment to really grow and make sure this company can come to fruition? So the person at the helm really sets the vision. Right? This is the problem we're trying to solve. This is kind of the box. This is what the future looks like when we've solved that problem. And this is kind of like the halfway point to solving that problem. And this is kind of the quarter of the waypoint. And then having said that vision, the person at the helm recruits people who believe in that same vision and who believe in solving that problem and recruit, tries to recruit talent that is working with each other and collaborating towards solving that problem. And then kind of steps back and lets those, those people step in and then focuses on clearing the obstacles for those people. That to me is really the quality of a leader. Once you've set the goal, the leader is really a servant to the people that are working for them. And maybe this is a question for founders right now, uh, or, or people just trying to, trying to start up a company. Um, you know, yes, we want to bring people into our company that are aligned with our mission, that are going to be great employees for the long term. Now, does funding come first? Are you trying to raise capital first or are you trying to solve that problem and get customers first? Or how did you go about your process? So you, you solve that problem and get, get customers first. The, the, the truth is that money doesn't come until you've really uh, solved the problem. They demonstrated that you have a path to solving a problem. You don't, you don't necessarily have to have solved the problem, but demonstrated that you have a theory about it and that you've got something where you've managed to get some customers interested in getting that problem solved. Um, a lot of founders think that just raising money is the way to go. The reality, in my experience, 
is that yes, you can try to raise money, but if until you've got that first customer, that money is kind of useless. And there's there's a little bit of a value in actually start, uh, starving in the early days because the people you're going to attract to help solve that problem are not going to be attracted by the money. They're going to be attracted by the mission. And if those people that are attracted by the mission are going to continue whether you have the money or not. Whereas if you raise the money, you may actually end up having to filter out the people that are only attracted by the money in order to figure out which ones are going to help you achieve your mission. And and Tristan, is there a difference between casebook right now and the people that might be more mission driven being a, a, a benefit corporation versus the other organizations that you've started? That's a very good question. I think the, the difference is really in the problem we're trying to solve. Uh, but uh, fundamentally, the people that we have working here are really not that different from the people in other organizations that I've worked in. Mm-hmm. And that's largely because uh, there are people that are driven by solving particular problems at scale. And what I'm looking for when I'm building teams is really getting people that are interested in solving the problems. My experience is that actually the money kind of takes care of itself if you're really focusing on solving the problems. Hmm. That's very good advice, Tristan. And how much of this uh, attraction to your company would you attribute to marketing? Uh, I think a large part. And uh, the truth truth thing is that, you know, marketing is really about getting your word out, your message out there. Mm. You can toil in darkness and you will never really uh, necessarily achieve anything. You have to get the word out. I mean, we we focus very much on recruiting message, for example, around build something that matters. Why are we focusing around building something that matters? Because in a world where there is so much of a focus around the ills of technology, we stand there differently as the kind of company that is actually using technology to make the world a better place. And that is actually something that is very attractive to people that are coming from banking, to people that are coming from advertising, to people that are coming that are the best in their field in other verticals, but where the abuses have gotten so high in those particular verticals that they're looking for some greater meaning. And as a result, they come and work for us. Mm. Tristan, you were in banking and now you're doing something for social services. Why the change? Um, the, honestly, the problems in banking became kind of boring. Uh, I mean, to me, it's always been, you know, about solving particular, particularly large problems. And, uh, and fundamentally, they are very similar type of problems. The, uh, uh, the funny thing is that banking is about money, right? And money is about trust. And trust, it's trust plus identity when you think about money. Why do you take, uh, if somebody hands you a dollar bill, why do you accept that piece of paper, right? It's because a dollar bill is just a piece of paper. But it's because you're trusting that that piece of paper has a value of $1 and that uh, it is backed by an entity, the American government in that particular case, that will guarantee that it is worth $1. But it's the trust that is fundamental to any kind of uh, banking transaction. And around that, you kind of wrap data and you can do some interesting stuff around trust and data. 
you then link that stuff ultimately to some kind of identity because you've got the owners of those banking transactions. Well, in social services, it's really about you know providing a service to an individual. Individual, right? That individual's identity, and then the services are really the data, the data points that are embedded into some kind of trusted relationship. And so, fundamentally, it's the same kind of challenges. It's just that in social welfare, there are uh, challenges that have not been solved yet. In banking, a lot of the big problems have been solved. There are still some to be solved, but for the most part, the interesting challenges have been solved. Tristan, lead yourself problems. So the last question I'll ask you is, what is your definition of a real leader? A real leader is someone that can identify a way to make the world a better place, galvanize people around a solution to make the world a better place, and then get those people to execute on that solution and actually improve the overall world to leave it a better place after long after we're all gone. Uh, Tristan Lewis, thanks for being on the show today. Uh, where can people find maybe more information about yourself or about Casebook? So Casebook, you can uh, follow us on social media on, at Casebook PBC. We're on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. You can go visit our website at www.casebook, that's C-A-S-E-B-O-O-K.net. Um, if you want to find out more about me, you can Google me, I guess, or uh, you can go directly to my personal site at tnl.net. Tristan, appreciate your time coming on the show. I really enjoyed our conversation. Talked about a lot today. Uh, talked about, is it a tool or a weapon today? Uh, a little bit about interoperability, how that can uh, increase education rates by getting people into good homes, uh, as well as saving people time who are just on their computers and they want to help out, but they're on computers too much. Uh, went into a little bit more about data security, wrapped it up with your career path with uh, some banking and, and some leadership advice. Really helpful leadership advice, Tristan. So I just want to appreciate you coming coming on the show. Uh, For Tristan Lewis, I'm Kevin Edwards asking to go out there, galvanize people around the common goal, execute that goal. And always folks, keep it real. Thanks, Tristan. Thank you. All right. And that's going to wrap it up for this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. If you made it this far in the episode, we just want to say thank you by giving you a free special edition. All you have to do is go to real-leaders.com slash impact dash awards enter in your email and you're going to be sent a free special edition that's going to be featuring our cover star Miyoko Shinner along with stories from 100 top impact companies again folks that's real-leaders.com slash impact-awards check it out <laughs>